Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. Back on Valentine's Day, I uh, did stand up for the first time in like three years. I opened for my friend Joe Madaris. It was a big crowd. It was in our hometown. And it was great. And it all came back to me. And since I moved back east, I think I've only done stand up like a handful of times. But my guest today, I saw Felicia Michaels post that he got on stage a few weeks ago, I believe, for the first time in 28 years. And my guest is Mike Binder. How you doing, Mike? Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So what was it like? I mean, what made you get back? Because, tw- I mean, three years was long for me. 28 years. I mean, what happened? Well, the funny thing is, from the time I was 17 to like 32, I did it every single night of my life. I was addicted, <laughs> you know? It was my life. And then I just let it go because of the broadband. I just only, you know, I was raising kids. I was married and I was making movies and I was doing things. I just didn't, I wasn't doing it full board. What I thought at the quality, I wanted to do it. So I just stopped and, and never looked back. I just kind of liked not doing it. And then when I was doing the comedy store documentary, people kept saying, is it giving you the bug back? And I said, no, not really. And then, I don't know, uh, um, Felicia asked me to do this thing, Age Against the Machine, that Richie Scheidner did, who's a really good buddy of mine. And I thought, all right, well, if Scheidner did it, I'll do it. And I went up, and my friend Alan Stevens was there, and it, it just went great. It was like a warm bath. I was in the womb. But, you know, it's like heroin, man. I, one killer set, and you're in the alley blowing guys for time spots again. You know, I, I just... I've been doing it every weekend since and, you know, going up before Mark Norman and Paul Verzi and Steve Byrne, who was has been very great, generous. And these guys let me jumping up and, and I, I love it. And I, I think I'm going to stay with it because I really enjoy the hell out of it. And I'm writing a lot. Now, how is the temperature of the crowds for you? Like when I opened for my friend, I grew up, I, I live 10 minutes outside Philadelphia. And it was my crowd. I'm, I'm 58. Joe's 55. It was he's got a heavy Italian Jewish crowd. It's the people I grew up with. So when I'm on stage, we could basically say anything because the crowd was used to that. But for you, because I know well, you played at the comedy store, and I think you were just in San Diego. Do you feel a difference in crowds from when you were on stage years ago? No, I, I I feel like the crowd is reacting to me a little bit better than they did when when I was last doing it. You know, I was thirty, and I don't know. I was maybe a little cockier, or maybe a little bit more threatening. I don't know. I just feel like now I'm just like an old fucking bald man, and with you know, sixty four, telling jokes about being sixty four, and and the audiences, even if they're younger than me, they're just really liking what i'm doing which makes me happy obviously because you know you gotta be a narcissist to get up there to begin in the in the first place and but i i just um i find the audience is i'm i'm doing stuff that's about anything i want to talk about and and they i have not had any problems at all now, you think it helps the two that, like you said, you just don't give a shit. Like, you know, when we all started out and we would start working and you had to worry about if you had a good set or a bad set because a club might not book you again. But as you get older and it's not your main concern, you don't give a crap. Do you have a, a, a carefree attitude now when you go on stage? I do. But I also, I have to tell you, that at the same time, I want to do well. I, I find I want to entertain more than I did. I, I felt like, uh, I guess maybe when I was doing it before, it was more about me, you know, and, and I just really feeling like I want to make them laugh and, and entertain them, you know? And so I'm not like, it's not like I don't give a shit. I really do. I really, I've been, I've been putting a lot of work into the sets and knowing what I want to do and, and working on the material, I think maybe a little bit more than I did back then. Now, has your writing style changed? I mean, do you, do you, I mean, I don't know what your style was before, but some people write where it just pops in your head. As you've gotten older, has your style changed? Plus, because you've written scripts, you've developed shows, so you've had a whole area of writing expertise that a lot of comics haven't had a chance to. Has that made you a better writer, do you think, now for stand-up, per se? Well, that's a good question, because I think 
it's I'm much more disciplined than I was. You know, when I last was doing it, I was very disciplined and I just kind of jumped up a lot, you know, whereas, you know, I write every day and I've written a lot of scripts. I've written a novel. I've written shows. You know, I, I, it, I, it's normal for me to write three, four hours a day. So I am putting in, but stand up is the type of thing you really can only write notions, as you know, you know, it, it has to be refined on stage. So, but that is, I, I, I am writing, I am writing more than I was then already, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really, I have a backlog of stuff, you know. Now, what got you into comedy? I know you started young. It's funny. I saw one of your first credits was on the Mike Douglas show, which growing up there fell off. He was very dear to my heart. Yeah. But what, what, yeah. what got you into comedy? Because really? it's funny. I told you earlier, I, I, I spoke to Tommy Chong today, and I remember listening to my brother's wedding album when I was like 11 years old, and I laughed my ass off. And I remember getting Carlin's Toledo Window Box, which I didn't know what a window box was. I didn't know my parents didn't know what that was because they wouldn't want to, you know. But So I had those early emphasis. What got you into comedy? Um, I loved Woody Allen and, um, geez, I loved Woody Allen and I loved Mel Brooks and I loved Albert Brooks and Robert Klein, I think was the guy that really, but the real thing is when I was a kid, my dad loved to tell jokes and be funny. And I used to love to make him laugh. And then I saw Woody on the Ed Sullivan show. He, he told me when I was like nine, I just turned to him and said, this is what I'm going to do with my life. But so I, I was, I was really studying comedians all the way up until the time I started doing it at 17. And I've never looked back, you know, I, I've never really looked back. I really am obsessed with the art of stand up comedy. Now you're from Detroit. Is that where you first got on stage? What was your first night on stage? Because I remember mine. I had a really good set, and we walk off like, "Oh yeah, we could be featuring." And then the next set, I ate shit and didn't come back for like three weeks. When was that? How? That, what year was that? That was '88. '88 at the Comedy Factory outlet in Philadelphia, and we had the Comedy Factory outlet, and we had the Comedy Works across the street. And I went up, and I had a good set, and I felt, you know, you're like, "Oh yeah, yeah," and you don't understand what it actually takes to be a good comic. And then when I said I came back, my tail was between my legs. You know, I didn't come back for a while. What was what was your first yeah. night like? I mean, it was my Detroit. first set was a place called the Golden Phoenix in Ann Arbor, and I bombed horribly. It was a jazz club, and I just asked the guy. I said, "Hey, I'm," and this was probably seventy-seven or seventy-eight. So it was a barren time for comedy. There were no comedy clubs and. Steve Martin had broken a few years earlier, but other than that, there really weren't a lot of, there was the catch in, in, in the improv in New York and the comedy store in LA and the Holy City Zoo. And I, I think that's it really. And I, I asked this guy, can I go up? It was a jazz club, very black audience. And I, and, and I, I probably was the only white guy in the club, I think. And um, I bombed really bad, you know, but I went back later and did really well, you know, and but never really killed till I got out. The first night I got out to L.A., which uh, uh, I, right after high school, I moved to L.A. And I went on on a Monday night at the comedy store the very first time ever. And I had the best set I had ever had. And Mitzi Shore was there and she said, you can come work out. You can be a regular, and and if you want a job, you can be a doorman here. And that's what I did. Now, who were some of the comics when you first got out to L.A.? Because you're thinking back then, who were some of the guys that were working the scene when you are and you're 18? Which is just amazing that you just got up and left. Because I mean, a lot of us went to college, and then you know we still don't know what the hell we're doing in college. But to have the balls to just leave at 18, I mean and get there who were some of the guys that were there and did any of them mentor you at all yeah oh yeah like jay leno became like my older brother big buddy you know i hung out with jay leno every night for three four years every night we went back to his place and watched tapes of his act and 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 uh 
other people on the on talk shows and I went with Jay to his first couple tonight shows and Jimmy Walker was a big name then uh Gary Mule Deer Tom Dreesen um David Letterman was the house MC uh Boy, who else? Uh, Robin Williams came around a lot during that period. He he was at the store almost every night. So it was a it was an incredible time. And then a couple of years later, some guys that I knew from back in the Detroit, Toronto, Windsor scene, like Jim Carrey, came out. You know, uh, I was really good friends with Argus Hamilton, who who was a political comic, who was a big part of the comedy store at the time and sandra bernhardt was there uh elaine boozler it was pretty great it was pretty I, i'm i'm very grateful for the time i had there you know well as you're doing it when do you start getting tv like i said like i think mike douglas was your first show i mean what was it was it hard to get TV? i got television really fast i was very lucky merv griffin Mike Douglas, The Tonight Show, uh, a lot of pilots. I'd shot a lot. I worked for Norman Lear a couple times. I, I did the diner pilot for Barry Levinson. I, uh, you know, I, I was really lucky. I was really lucky. You know, I, you know, at the time, you, if you got spots at the store, you were seen by a lot of these people. And um, George Shapiro, who was Carl Reiner's nephew and a manager, came in and uh, brought Norman Lear to see me. That was great. And uh, I don't know, you know, I just, um, I was really at the right place at the right time. It was a tremendous time for comedy. And, and I was a bit of a novelty act because I was only 18, you know, I was kid comedy. You know, it was the nickname I gave myself, and it stuck. Everybody called me Kid Comedy, and um, and uh, I was just I was really lucky. So, as you're doing comedy and you're getting pilots, when do you transition decide to start writing screenplays? I mean, was were you getting a little tired of comedy, or were you just sitting there going, "These pilots aren't getting picked up," or what happened? No, no, well, pilots weren't getting picked up, and. It, I was sorry about that. I don't. I don't know why. That, I don't know how to turn that off. If I. If I. If I mute. If I mute that, I think I'll mute my mic. So. Don't hear anything. Uh, oh. Oh, you don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I was just testing you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I. Um. I was always writing screenplays, though, Steve. I, I. I really. Um. I wanted to be Woody Allen. You know, I wanted to write movies, and I wanted to do what Barry Levinson and all these guys were doing. So I just, I, I wrote this, there was a story in my family about a, my dad and his two brothers who drove a classic car that their grandfather had refurbished down to Florida from Detroit and they destroyed it along the way. And they always told the story from three completely different point of views at holiday dinners and stuff. And I always thought, that's a movie. So I wrote this movie, Larry Bresner, who was um, Robin Williams, and he was manager, and a bunch Billy Crystal, and he worked for Rollins and Joffe Mora, and, and Mora at the time, he later became and Bresner, and Steinberg. But he took a liking to the script, and there was a guy named Steve Friedman who had, I think it was called King's Road Films. He offered me to option the idea for like, I don't know, 15000 which was like crazy money to me. And Larry Bresner said, look, I don't think you should take the option. I think the script needs a lot of work. I'll work with you on it, and um, I'll give you nothing. <laughs> but I'll help you get this thing made, and I'll, I'll even you can be a co-producer and be on the set every day. And so I trusted him because he, I just liked him, you know, he, and he did, he stayed with it and he sold it and I got paid 
and I was on the set every day. I had a co-producer credit, and uh, that started my career. You know, at 29 years old, I had a produced screenplay. And then I wrote another one, even more about my life, my, me and my friends called Crossing the Bridge. And it was Stephen Baldwin and David Schwimmer and, and uh, Josh Charles and Jason Gedrick, a bunch of people's first movie. Not Jason's, but all the other guys. It was their first big movie, you know, them starring roles. And uh, Larry Estes, who ran uh, Columbia TriStar Home Video and had made Sex, Lies, and Videotape with this producer, Bobby Newmeyer, gave me $3 million to make the movie. Larry Estes just said, here. He had known me from my stand-up days, uh, some HBO stuff I did that he sold specials for, to colleges. And he said, I, I trust Mike. And he gave me $3 million and we made it in Minneapolis. And he didn't even, he, he came to the set one day and left it in lunch. <laughs> I never even saw him, you know, but, and then Touchstone, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg bought the movie and Touchstone released it. And it didn't do business, but I got really good reviews. And they said, well, they made, gave me a deal in an office and I made Indian Summer for them, which was a summer camp movie with Alan Arkin and Kevin Pollack and Diane Lane and so many people. And I just didn't stop. I made like 10, 11 movies in a row after that. Yeah, well, Sex Monster, you were also in that. That was that was a very, you, you know, you got very great reviews. How did that come about? And then what was it like for you to direct yourself because you are a leading man in that? Uh, that was, that came later. I had made this movie for Columbia with my friend Damon Wayne's Blank Man that bombed really bad and I was in jail for a long time. So I just made this little low budget movie for a few hundred thousand dollars. And I took it to the Aspen Comedy Festival and it won Best Picture and I won Best Actor and and kind of got me out of jail, you know? What is that like when, you, when you're sitting there and you know, people don't understand that. Like you can be so hot and then something happens and then you have to scrub. I mean, you're still a young guy, but you've had, it seems you had a very good rising you know you were sitting there right. the comedy went good then all, and it's like you know you're the comedy kid and then all of a sudden you're like holy shit i'm in jail i mean what goes through your mind when when you do something? it was really frustrating it was really frustrating i remember this one agent i don't i won't say his name but he was my agent at the time and i was so frustrated and my manager said all right we're gonna have a breakfast try to get mike out of jail and the agent we're going to go to the Bel Air Hotel, and the agent calls me up. You'll take. Can you pick me up uh, at my house because my car broke down, and my assistant's going to get it, and he'll have it at the hotel. But you live close to me. Pick me up. So we're going to go, and we're going to have this talk about how to get me out of jail. And he gets in. He sits down. And he goes, "I got some good news. You want to hear some good news?" And I'm thinking, "Far out. I'm out." He's got a movie for me. I go, yeah, what's the good news? He goes, we're going to sign Stallone. <laughs> what a prick. <laughs> I go, okay, great. And, but no, I sat in jail for a while and just made that little movie, got myself out of it. And that's that's been my whole life. You know, I've always had to do stuff my own way and do it my own things. And you get hot, you get cold. I did this movie, Upside of Anger, and with Kevin Costner and Jonah Allen and Everybody loved it, and I got offered all this stuff, and I just, you know, and then I made a movie a couple of years later with Ben Affleck called Man About Town for Lionsgate that bombed, and, you know, it just, and then I made it Rain Over Me that didn't make money, but people loved, you know, and it's just been up and down, you know, it's just been up and down for me. Tell me about Mind of a Married Man. I like that show. Uh, Taylor was on a while ago, and we were talking about it. And I know you had Slayton come on and play a role, a character named Slayton. And uh, yeah. that that was a really good show. And it's just weird. I remember because 
not a lot of people have HBO, and it was different, but it was just good. It was like, it was something that you could relate to. How did that show come about, and, and what is it like when all of a sudden you're directing movies and writing movies, but now you have to think of a whole, you know, a spectrum of, of, of a season? I mean, how did that show, first of all, come about? Well, I had done, uh, I had done a movie in England called The Search for John Gissing with Alan Rickman and Janine Garofalo and myself. And it won a bunch of film festival awards, but never really got a good release. But Chris Albrecht at the, um, at HBO, who had been my agent years earlier, came to the editing room and looked at some piece of it while I was closing it up. And he said, you, should, you want to do a series for us? And uh, we developed Mind of the Married Man for a few years about married men and life and, you know, just dealing. We never wanted to be a male sex in the city, which is what they thought we were doing when we came out. But we worked really hard on it. And then we shot a pilot. And then I went and made Minority Report. I was acting in Minority Report. And um, Steven Spielberg loved the pilot and a bunch of other people called HBO. This is a great pilot for you guys. And they just picked it up. They gave me, I think, 10 episodes. And it was fun. I, I mean, Scheidner and I wrote most of it. And um, Bob Nickman and Bob Saget directed it, and uh, uh, Bruce Paltrow, who was one of my heroes, came and directed it. It was, it was. We, we had a really good cast: Taylor Nichols, who I loved in Barcelona, and all the Whit Stillman movies. And he's a guy from Michigan, and he was fantastic in that show. I loved him. I loved working with him. He was just. It was everything I liked about an actor and uh, Jake Weber and M.M. Walsh. You know, it was, it was really an amazing cast. And um, but but, you know, I don't know. It's like people beat it up so bad. It was like, it was like what, what's there to beat up? You know, I mean, all these men are telling me how great it is and how much it affects their life. And, you know, they were just trashing the shit out of it. So, now how does that make you feel? Because once again, you know, it's it's you're you're not only you're the writer, you're the creator, you're the star. People are liking it, but I mean, how does it make you feel when you hear these people trashing it when when you know it's good product? It's like when you do comedy. You know, you know a joke works, and sometimes it's going to go on, and you're going to have a shitty night it's not gonna work but this people are saying it's good how does it make you feel as someone who's creative do you just feel like shit or do you want to overcome that or does it piss you off it pissed me off i was i was bummed and then we did a second season uh i did a second season and i um you know i just you know i i was lucky too it pissed me off, but I also, I got a, up, the upset of anger made during that period, you know? So I went off, I went off and made, I think, one of the best movies I made. What made it so good? I mean, I, I, know, I know there's a great scene where you get, you're getting smacked <laughs> and Joan Allen's smacking you. And uh, it's just- Well, it, made, it was good because Kevin Costner and Joan Allen were so good together. And, and Erica Christensen was so good and Carrie Russell and Evan Rachel Wood and, and Alicia Witt. You know, it was just, it was all these people kind of acting and working at, at their best. And for some reason or other, they really trusted me, you know, and did, did, did it, they liked my script, you know? And I think a lot of the women we just wanted to work with Joan Allen, <laughs> you know, they loved Joan Allen, but, uh, they were great. It, and I don't know. I, I felt the script, it just came out better than the movie came out better than my script, you know, which is what it takes. It has to be, has to be better than your script. 
Is it intimidating as a director, even though you had a lot of projects under your belt and worked with good actors, great actors, all of a sudden you're working with Costner, who, you know, is Costner, and Joan Allen, who's an Oscar winner. I mean, is it, as a director, do you walk in saying, okay, I they're going to do great because you, you know how to direct them, or do you sit there and go, I hope I direct them right because they are great? Well, I had learned working with Barry Levinson on a diner pilot that he just kind of didn't do a lot of directing. He he told me once, he said, if I cast well, I really just kind of kind of shut up on the set, you know? And I kind of took that to heart. I, I, I didn't, I tried not to direct too much. I tried to just be supportive and let people do what they're supposed to be doing, you know? And I had just worked with Joan Allen as an actor in a movie, uh, Rod Lurie's movie, The Contender. So Joan and I knew each other and I knew how great she was. And Costner and I had met a few times and he always told me he was the fan. So I just called him up. He gave me his number one night at a premiere. So I could come up and watch a movie or something at the house. And I never called him because I figured you know, yeah, sure. <laughs> but I did call him. I said, will you read? And he said, hey, I've been watching your TV show. It's like watching my dirty laundry. <laughs> and, but he read the script and he wanted to do it. And Alex Gardner, the producer, put it together and we made it. And then New Line, New Line picked it up when it was finished. Now, now, what's it like directing yourself? I always think that would be tough. I mean, because we're all so hard on ourselves. I mean, it's something that, as you said, you know, you said it takes a narcissist to be on stage. Yeah, but we're all very insecure that we get on stage. What is it like to direct yourself? Are you in your mind a lot where you can sit there? Like that scene with Joan Allen where she's smacking you and she's telling you, telling you about you're dating all the young girls. And you have the great line saying, She was well, really smacking me. Really? She was really smacking me, too. <laughs> she's a method or whatever you call it. I don't know. But she just decided to smack the shit out of me. And then she'd say, are you okay? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And then the next take, she hit me harder. <laughs> so what's it like directing yourself in something like that? Do you, do you tend to get in your head, or do you just have to really learn to not think about it? I like it. I like it. I like it better. I like it better than having to tell an actor who explain an act, a scene to an actor, you know? Now, as your career is going on, well, first of all, the comedy story documentary, how did that come about? Because that was great, and it was something that it needed to be, the story needed to be told. Did you get approached for that because you were involved for so long, or how did that come about? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was an incoming call. I never had made a documentary, and I hadn't been to the comedy store in a lot of years. But Peter Shore, who owned it now, or ran it, because his mother was getting very old at the time. She, she died while we were making it. But he called me up with Mike Tolan, who's really a great documentary producer, and asked me to do it. And I, I had said yes to so many things about comedians over the years. I just didn't, it was just for some reason, I just didn't want to do anything about comedians. And I had been on Mark Marin's uh, podcast, the only podcast I was ever on. And he had asked me to do it and talk about the comedy store days because he's like a little bit of a nut for that. And I said, well, I don't want to talk about that. I got this novel coming out. Can I, I need help with that. He said, okay, but we're going to talk about the comedy store. And we talked about the comedy store and, and I really enjoyed talking about it more than I thought I was going to. And I hadn't wanted to be involved with the Showtime series that was with fake people. And um, when Mike Tolan called and, and I went instantly, I just said, yes. I thought, God, this is the way to do that comedy store show is to tell real stories. And when I got there, it was, it was good because the first couple episodes I knew really well, I was just telling shit that I knew. But the later episodes, I, I was just learning about the Rogan era and, and Chris D'Elia and all these guys 
really had to tell me what was life like at Marin. And they had to tell me, explain me, Burke Kreischer, Whitney Cummings. I was more of a reporter. So I really liked that. I took That took two years to make. Now, were you happy with the end product? Because it's so much, yeah. it's a big part of your life in the beginning. I mean, and how was it, you know, as you said, the beginning was more like telling stories. How do you choose, because you were there at a young age and it was such a booming time of talent. How could you pick and choose who to include in those earlier years because you knew those years and the stories? How do you siphon so many, as you said, you're there every night, so it's 365, year after year after year. How do you compress that? wasn't easy, you know? It wasn't easy. I called Chris Rock. He had done this um, hair document. He had done a couple. And he said, get ready, man. It's harder than a movie, man. It's it's like uh, you're going to have so much footage that you just got to comb through. And <clears throat> it wasn't easy. Now, you mentioned a novel. What made you decide to write a novel? Was that just something you always wanted to do because... You know, TV, movies, created TV, directed. Where did the novel come from? Tell me more about it. Oh, I wanted to make a thriller, a political thriller. And I thought, well, it'd be hard to get it made. But if it's a book, maybe it'll be easier. And I wrote this political thriller set in London. And I was sent it, I was lucky I got it to John Grisham's agent, David Gernert. And uh, he sold it right away. He got me, he set me up at McMillan. Uh, Holt, maybe Henry Holt at McMillan, but um, I was lucky, and then I sold the rights to it to New Line to make as a movie, and that didn't come together. But then I got I, I wrote it as a series, and I got Kate Winslet attached, and for a while she was producing it with me and really in, and then um, we couldn't get it going for some reason. I don't know what it was. Now, what's the difference in the writing process? Because you have to be much more, you know, a screenplay, you can say, interior, this, that, it looks like a sunny day, and then it just happens. What is it like when you have to sit down and you have to, you have to be so, have such a vision, but you have to be very precise? What was that like for you? Was that a hard write at first? And did you learn more as you were going through it? Or how was the process? It was... Like anything, it's just one foot in front of the other. You know, I happen to know know a lot about British politics. It was kind of a hobby of mine, and and um, I don't know. It, it was a, it was a good process. Now you've also written for some TV, Ray Donovan, Nashville. There, you're, I mean, it's it's so funny your career. You've done so much and so many different genres. How did Ray Donovan come about? Because that's once again, it's different from what you've written before. Uh, my friend David Hollander, who was the executive producer, showrunner, just called me and asked me if I wanted to do it. That was it. And I thought, I thought, I've never tried that. I'll do it. Yeah. Now I did a year. And I knew I was only going to do a year. You know, I, I didn't want to stay with it, and um, but um, it was hard. It was hard, you know. But I, I, I learned a lot. Now, now you have StandUpWorld.com. It's your blog. Yeah. Now, tell me about that because it's something that, you know, we need we need people to talk about stand-up. Like, as I said, you know, when I was early, when I started doing comedy, I worked the door to Comedy Factory Outlet. And I would watch people come in, like Tim Allen and, you know, Dom Herrera, who was from Philly. And I learned a lot. And, and I think now as much people, some, for some reason, because there's YouTube and everything, I always get the feeling that no one really wants to study the the elder statesman you know like you watch a shiner and you go god he makes it look so easy is is that one of the reasons why you started stand-up world just to get more yeah. out there well it, it was two avenues one to promote kind of people that are great but that other people don't know yet and also to write essays and do little documentaries on people that have gone that i don't want to be forgotten like flip wilson and joan rivers and phyllis diller and and you know and at the same time promote people that are just great that are out there like mark norman and shane gillis and and um you know there's so many you know that annie letterman and and ali mccloskey and 
you know, Brian Simpson. I mean, there are just so many great comics right now. And Andrew Schultz, these guys, and I just really like writing these essays. What do you love about watching a young comic who you know has the chops and just isn't there yet? Is there, do you, do you watch it and say, wow, like, can you tell because you've been in the business for so long? Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, first of all, I, I, it still makes me laugh really hard and I love to laugh. I think it's really healthy. Now I was really laughing hard when I wasn't doing stand up, and I would always say it's so much more fun to watch when you're not doing it because you're not going, oh, I do something like that or oh, I should have thought of that. So I think that's going to change. Unfortunately, it's like when you do magic, you're always looking at the trick, you know, and you know. But I mean, last I was in San Diego and I saw this guy, Freddie Gonzalez, and I thought he was just great. I was so impressed with him. You know, he he's new and but he's ballsy and he, he uh, he's kind of got his character fully formed. And I was, it was so much fun to watch him and he made me laugh really hard. Now, what was your set like in San Diego? How much time did you, do, did you do? And what was, what was your, a lot of your topic? What was, I mean, you said you were talking about being a 64 year old guy, but are you just, I mean, how do you relate that to a crowd? I don't know. I talk about my age. I talk about my kids. You know, my daughter's coming out as a lesbian. I talk about my son. Uh, I talk, I tell, I tell stories about um, when I went to jail outside the comedy store one night, you know, and I tell stories about meeting Muhammad Ali when I was trying to sell tickets to a show I did in Detroit years ago. And, you know, I just, try to do it the same way that I'm doing these essays, just take real stories and find the humor in them and, and make them entertaining. Now, what was the jail story? I like to hear that. Well, I, I mean, you know, I'm 37 years sober in AA, but the night I got, last night I got loaded, I was in front of the comedy store, just drunk out of my mind, higher in a kite, and a cop cruiser came by and I thought, okay, this will be funny. I'm going to moon these guys. All the comics are going to love it. And in a, I pulled my pants way down, just spread my cheeks as far as they spread. And, and in a jump cut, I was in the back of the car with handcuffs on going to West Hollywood police station where I was booked for indecent exposure. And, you know, it was funny too, because I was in this holding cell alone with this drag queen, which is what we called them at the time. We didn't have sophisticated names like transgender, or trans anything. You know, it was just, they were drag queens and I was doing bits on her. Hey, so why would they call you a drag queen? Did that come with a Camaro? You got a Buick? Will you race a Buick? How are you, how are you a drag queen? Because I don't, you look like a guy dressed like a woman. I'm a woman. And in another jump cut, she came over and beat the hell out of me. She just beat the piss out of me in that. And then she sat back down and she goes, guess what? You just got beat up by a man dressed like a woman. <laughs> and about 4.30 that morning, Mitzi Shore, the owner of the comedy store, came down in her bathrobe and her old Jaguar and bailed me out when she heard about it, drove me back to my apartment. And on the way back, she had heard about me and the drag queen. She said, you know, Mike, you got to have empathy. You really got to have some empathy. Somebody that dresses up like that is doing it because it's important to them. And it hit me, you know, it hit me that when I drink and have do drugs i don't have a lot of empathy i i, I forget who i am as a person because i am an empathetic person and i said mitzi you're right i'm going to get sober and she said to me I swear to god she goes oh good and also take some self-defense because because <laughs> i don't care how sober you get you're still going to shoot your mouth off i know you <laughs> no 
Now, was it hard for you to get sober? Was it was it a very hard passage, or did you sit there at that time? And everyone says some people just have that sign where they go, "I have to change." Was it hard for you though? Because you you were you know you're in the business and you're at the club and you know it's all around the club. There was a guy named Jesse Aragon who died in a car in a motorcycle accident. He, he took me to AA. He guided me through it. And then a bunch of other comics I knew got sober, and we started a show called The Yuckaholics. We raised money. It's still going on 30 years later. Raised money for for um, recovery homes, and um, I liked it. There was a men's stag in the back of an old pancake house called Uncle John's, John's Pancake House, and I just felt, you know, I could make the guys laugh and. They laughed, but they also talked real and serious and changed my life. You know, I, I really, I believe in having something that other than just you, you know, and helping people get sober is a, is a great thing. I'm still 37 years later, a big, big part of my life is sobriety and, and helping people that need to get a new life. Now, you know, we talk about you know, you've been involved in comedy and sobriety. And a lot of folks like Rich is Rich has been sober for a long time. And a lot of people have Marin's been sober for a long time. You know, when you sit there and when you guys I don't know how sober Marin is. Let's be honest, Joe. No, I'm kidding. Steve. <laughs> what uh you know, you guys you got, you know you know is, does this whole thing about now the history of comedy. For you, because you're also somewhat of a comedy historian, could you if someone said to you, Hey Mike, give me the Mount Rushmore of comedy could you do it, or is it too subjective, or do you have certain people? like? No, I have it. I think, who I is think it? it's Richard, Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Dave Chappelle, and Bill Burr. No Woody and Allen? Joan Rivers, and Joan Rivers. What, well, you mentioned well, I don't think that, I, I don't think that Joe, Woody Allen stayed with stand-up long enough to be on that Mount Rushmore. But I think those five, and you know, I think I think they're the best that's ever done it, in my opinion. And, and maybe Ricky Gervais. What what makes them the best? Like I know you've directed Burr. Um, what makes Bill so good? Is it just his energy, or what? You know, because there's so many comments. What makes him stand out to you, especially because you're someone who's been around for a long time? What just is it? Just his material? Is it attitude, or is his whole package, or what is it? Well, it's not just to me. It, it's it's not sorry. It's not. It's not just to me. It's um. It's to everybody. I mean, the guy's selling out Fenway Park. You know, I mean, obviously he's doing something that different that other people aren't. And uh, I, I think it's the dedication to the craft that he has. I think. I don't think he's not necessarily that ballsy or bold like maybe an Andrew Schultz or a Gervais or. Or Chappelle, because I don't think so. I think he's he kind of, but I think he's just got a great mind, and, and, and he he he's a scrappy guy on stage, and and he's very much true to who he is. I think he's I think he's a master. Now, for you, you're doing comedy. You're doing stand up world. What else? Are you working on any scripts or anything right now, or what are you doing? Oh, yeah. I'm getting ready to make another movie. I'm, I'm getting ready to make another movie, and I'm getting ready to do another six-part uh, documentary series. And um, I'm developing a show that Howie Mandel and I are going to do together. And I'm, I'm busier now than I've ever been in my life. Now, don't you think it's a hard time to take up stand-up now because you have so much shit going on? Because you know you're going to sit there and start doing it, and it's, as you said, it's like heroin. You're going to be like, i got to get on stage. What do you think is going to happen with your stand-up? Well, to be honest, Steve, I don't, I, I'm not looking for anybody to say yes to me in stand-up. If I stay with my stand-up, it's only because I think it's really good and really genuine and real, and I can put together a a show that's 50 minutes to an hour long that's really well thought out and very entertaining and if that's the case i'm not look you know i'll i'll just 
do what I've always done. I'll, I'll make my own special, put it up on YouTube or on my site, standupworld.com. And, and, and if I want to go out, I was just talking to Scheidner about this the other day. If I, you know, if comedy clubs don't want to book me, I'll just find little rooms with 150, 200 people, whatever, and go where people want to see me, you know? And I'm not looking to light the world on fire if I stay with it. It's, it's really not, I'm, I'm not trying not to be results based. I'm trying to be, um, uh, you know, output or, or whatever the word is, um, you know, process based. I want to see if I can really write stuff that I really love. And if I can, I'll stay with it and I'll not worried. I know when you say it's a bad time to do stand, it's a great time to do that. You know, Mark Norman put out his own special on YouTube, got 10 million views. Andrew Schultz, 10 million views, at least, you know, and I just, to me, the key word that I find right now about what works in standing up comedy is authenticity. Authenticity. And so I'm just going to figure out if there's an authentic version of what Mike Binder would do as a comedian. And if there is, and people like it, I'll make a great show. And if I, if there are, if there isn't, I'll go back to doing other things. Now, looking back on your career, just give me, before we go, give me a few of your highlights. What are some of the highlights when you look back on your career? What are some that you sit there that really are things that stand out to you that, you know, you really keep with you? Um, I think the night we showed Upside of Anger at the Sundance Film Festival in the Eccles Theater was probably a big night for me. I think the night we did, uh, Rain Over Me at the Museum of Art in New York. I think uh, the first time that I showed a few of my movies to a live audience and know that they loved it, the night that Kevin Costner and I went and showed Black or White to a black audience was a big night for me. Um, I think uh, the night that I shot the Detroit Comedy Jam which my HBO special in 1985 was probably one of the biggest nights of my life, you know, at the Fisher Theater in Detroit. Was that like a homecoming? I mean, just you coming back? Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I loved it. And I just put up, I'm actually just putting up pieces of it now on my site on standupworld.com because I got it back after all these years. Now, what do you think when you look back at your old stand-up? Like, do you sit there? Because it's it's a whole lifetime between. I mean, I look I look back at, like, I found one of my old tapes, and I was just like, holy shit, that stuff is so lame. And, and But it's just like, but when you look back now, how do you look at it? Do you, do you feel that it was cutting edge, or did you feel it? What do you feel? No, that was pretty lame. But, you know, I feel like, God, I wish I had all that hair back you know, and, um, but I, I could tell that I was having fun that night and that we shot it and, uh, I worked hard on that set. And then I did another HBO thing, a one night stand that I, I wrote all new material for. And I shot it at the old Vic in Chicago. And that was a big night for me. And, and I look back when I see that, when I see the one night stand, I'm really proud of that, but I don't, I don't really look, just so with that said, I don't really look at old stuff. I don't watch the movies that I made. I don't, you know, I've been watching the Detroit comedy jam because I was putting it up pieces up on the, on the site, but I'm, you know, do I wish I had had more success probably, but I'm also grateful for the, what I had. Well, you've had a great career. And what, I, and what I'm having, you know, I mean, I, sadly, I was at the Comedy Store 50th anniversary and there were all these comics from my era coming up and going, oh man, we, 
we had a good t- we had a good run, Mike. We had, and I'm thinking, I'm just getting started. Well, that's good, man. Well, you know what? I, I want to thank you for coming on. I uh, hopefully um, stand up world will keep going well. Hopefully, you'll get back on stage. I haven't been on stage since Valentine's Day because I always sit there and I go, I go, you know what? I go, do I do I really want to drive an hour? And I'm like, it's a lot of, yeah, yeah, I don't feel like. It. And then I'm like, you, and, and it's so funny. Like, there, my a guy had a club down the street, but he's sick right now. And because I, after I got done my show, you know, you come home, I'm sitting on the couch, I had a good set. You know, there's a lot of new material. I'm like, this is fucking great. And I'm sitting there, so I sent my buddy a message that used to book me here when I would just occasionally get on stage. And he has cancer, unfortunately. And he's like, I'm not running the club right now. And I'm like, then I'm like, yeah, well, it was right down the street. But it's weird as you get older, you're like, you get that high. Well, you have a good set. You get but it's great to it's great to have things like this, like to to have the creative output. I mean, how long have you been doing this show? Um, Eleven years. And you love it? Oh yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I get to look. I talked to you today. I talked to Tommy Chong tomorrow. I'm talking to Dave Thomas from you know Second City. So it's That's it's great. it's one of those things that yeah, it's good. And it's funny though because it's not stand up, but I love talking to comics because. You know, you've been you've been there. You know, so I, I used to love when I whenever Scheidner comes back east, we always get pizza, and I can just listen to him talk for. I mean, Scheidner is, is brilliant. Scheidner is is one of the undeclared geniuses, man. I I just I could watch him over and over again. I love that guy. I worked on a show with him in Valencia, Jr.'s the in the, in the Marie Callenders, and it was amazing. Is when he was tra- it was like when I was in L.A. It was like eight years ago. He was transferring to telling stories and then his bits. But the whole time, he would go between bits and these stories, and the whole time the crowd was mesmerized. And you're sitting there going, man, that's a craftsman. I mean, that's a true craftsman. Is, that's an authentic guy. And he wrote, he wrote an amazing screenplay about Artemis Ward, the first comedian ever back in Lincoln's day, a, a, a cohort of Mark Twain's, and he wrote a beautiful screenplay. Now, what's your new movie? Before we go, what's your new movie about? Can you talk about it? I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Not yet. No Not problem. yet. It's, it, I, I will be able to in about a week, but I, right now I just don't want it. Cool. Too, too messy to talk about, I've learned. All right. Well, I want to thank you. Now, the, the website is standupworld.com. And the substack, standupworld.substack.com. And you're on Twitter? I know you're on Instagram. And, and Instagram, yeah. The, the Mike Binder. So people, go check out Mike Binder. Go to the IMDb. Go watch his movies. Go find his stand-up. Go to his website. Read his blog. The guy knows comedy. Follow him. Uh, follow me. I'm uh, at Cooper Talk. My website's coopertalk.net. You can find over 915 episodes there. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.